This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on the Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. Now, since this podcast will be about a murdering duo, we'll just go over them both. Kenneth Bianchi was born on May 22, 1951, in Rochester, New York. Angelo Bono was born on October 5, 1934, also in Rochester, New York. And, as always, let's get into some history of that time. For 1934, for Angelo's year of birth, this was the year we saw the economy hit rock bottom during the Great Depression. In New York, people were losing their homes and had no option but to gather together and live in the slums. During this year, the inner city slum clearance began in New York and other major U.S. cities. This was also the year that Adolf Hitler declared himself the Fuhrer or ultimate ruler of Germany. In Russia, Stalin began ordering massacres of his own people, known as the Great Purge. Communism was spreading in China rapidly. This was the year for political extremism. Rising leaders used their people's own fears against them to rally their support for their agendas. In the U.S., major droughts in the Midwest caused millions of acres of farmland crops to be destroyed. John Dillinger, who was a bank robber, was killed in a shootout outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Also killed in 1934 were Bonnie and Clyde, near their hideout in Black Lake, Louisiana. Also in 1934, the man who kidnapped the Lindbergh baby, Bruno Hopman, was arrested and charged with the murder of that child. But on a lighter note, in January 1934 was the very first sighting of Scotland's famous Loch Ness Monster. The average cost of a house was $6,000 and wages were just about $1,600 per year. 
Gasoline was just 10 cents a gallon. That was for Angelo. Now let's look at Kenneth's year of birth in 1951. In the earlier part of that year, the United States government started nuclear bomb testing at a test site in the Nevada desert, roughly 65 miles away from Las Vegas. A lot of the testing had been done at an atmospheric level, but the horrid health effects afterward made them decide to begin testing underground in 1962. Now, between 1951 and 1992, a total of 928 nuclear tests were conducted at the Nevada test site. In Europe, the Treaty of Paris established the European Coal and Steel Community, and it was signed by six European nations in April of 1951. The nations included Italy, France, Belgium, West Germany, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. It was to join them all into an economic union, which actually was a precursor to the European Union. It was effective until 2002. Also in 1951, Libya gained its independence from Italy. In Jerusalem, King Abdullah of Jordan was assassinated. Iran nationalized its oil fields. The UN forced recapture of Seoul during the Korean War and in Southampton, United Kingdom, the largest oil refinery in Europe was opened. In the US, the Great Flood of 1951 hit the Midwest states, which makes up a significant portion of farmland. So you see, when Angelo was born, there was this ridiculous drought and then in 1951 it was a really bad flood. Also in 1951 the Festival of Britain opened at the Royal Festive Hall and the development of the birth control pill began and the movie quote the day the earth stood still debuted and the TV show I Love Lucy premiered the average cost of a new house was about $9,000 and the average annual wages were about $3,500. A new car would set you back about $1,500 and a gallon of gas was 19 cents. So this was the atmosphere that Kenneth and Angelo were both born into. So we'll begin with Kenneth's childhood. Kenneth was born to a 17-year-old alcoholic prostitute who was not prepared for motherhood. There is no known information about his biological father either. His mother, needing to go work the streets to earn money, gave her infant to a neighbor to, quote, watch for a day, who then passed him off to yet another neighbor to, quote, watch for a day, and so it went for four months straight. Finally, his mother gave him up for adoption, and when he was four years old, he was adopted by a young couple, Peter and Francis Bianchi, and he would be their only child. Now, stick with me on this, okay? It gets a little confusing. Francis, who adopted Kenneth, 
Okay, her sister gave birth to Angelo Bono. So the two were technically first cousins, though Angelo was already 17 years old when Kenneth was adopted. So Frances wanted to be the best mother she could be, to the point of being nearly, but innocently, obsessed with her new son. His mother stated that he was a noted, compulsive liar from the moment he could speak. It was stated that he was deeply troubled from a very young age. He was observed falling into a sort of glazed-over, trance-like state often, and his eyes would roll back into his head. So, at five years old, his mother took him to the doctor, stating he is still wetting the bed multiple times a night, and that he went into these strange trances. So, he was examined and diagnosed with petite mal seizures. His mother was convinced that he suffered with chronic urinary tract infections and had doctors examine him repeatedly, including performing x-rays on his bladder as well as having dye injected into his ureters or the tube that connects your kidneys to your bladder, which he later stated was completely humiliating. And then the icing on the cake was that his mother quite literally, made him wear women's maxi pads because he was having involuntary urination. When he was about six or seven, he and his mother got home from the grocery store, and Francis noticed stuff like candy and things falling out of his pockets. She asked him where he'd gotten it, and he completely denied any wrongdoing, saying he had no clue how the items had gotten into his pockets. Kenneth also would explode into these rages, and his mother took him to speak with a psychiatrist on several occasions, his mother describing him as being, quote, empty, and told the psychiatrist that he was troubled and needed intervention. He was then diagnosed with passive-aggressive personality disorder at the age of 10. You see, Francis meant well. She truly did. Her heart was in the right place. And a mother's instinct is not to be discounted. I'm quite sure she saw something in him that others might not have, most likely because he was quite manipulative. Frances loved him to the point of smothering him, though. She was terrified that he was going to get sick and die and even in Kenneth's medical records it's stated his mother was also troubled and might need help herself. At 11 years old Kenneth's IQ was tested to be 116 which is actually high average intelligence but his performance at school did not reflect this. In fact he refused to do most all of his schoolwork and was moved twice from schools because he was so confrontational with his teachers. He was described as lazy and working well below his capacity. When Kenneth was 13 years old, his father died suddenly from pneumonia. While he was upset, he refused to show any emotion or other signs of grief. 
And because her husband died, Frances, unfortunately, was forced to go to work outside of the home. And for some reason, it was stated that she kept him from school for extended periods of time, though I couldn't really find out why. And finally, he did manage to graduate from high school in 1970. So that was Kenneth's childhood. Let's get into it. We know Kenneth was passed around from person to person for the first four months of his life, and this can, and often, leads to bonding issues. Normally, infants quickly develop a close attachment with their main caregiver, who is usually mom and or dad right after they are born. If it is that the baby is unfortunately in a situation where they cannot experience this very important bond, it could lead to attachment disorders. This is usually due to the baby being neglected and or abused or being separated from their primary caregiver. Now the effects of not being able to have this bond can develop into behavioral problems as well as how that infant later handles and expresses their emotions and new situations. Signs of attachment disorder are that the baby cries inconsolably or the infant or child doesn't turn to their main caregiver when they are upset. They do not like being touched or comforted at all and they often do not smile or respond when interacting with others. The child doesn't show affection and there is a sort of lack of response to situations that would elicit a response from anyone else. The child will most likely have behavioral difficulties and show outward aggressive behavior towards adults and other children. They are anxious, fearful or depressed and unable to control their temper and they often do not do well within the complete school setting. When that child becomes a teenager, they become much more likely to get into trouble with the authorities. They also often have phobias, anxiety, depression. I go into a lot more detail about attachment disorders and this kind of information in my podcast about Peter Woodcock if you would like to go back and listen. Now Peter of course was an extreme case, but the damage is there nonetheless. Now, petite mal seizures are most often called absence epilepsy or absence seizures. It's basically that the sufferer has a nervous system disorder that causes a temporary change in brain activity. Petite mal seizures are brief, lasting usually less than 15 seconds, and the symptoms might not really even be that noticeable. They generally affect children starting from the ages of 5 to 9, but it can occur in adults. The signs are staring off into space, smacking lips together, fluttering eyelids, stopping speaking suddenly, um, sudden hand movements, leaning forward or backward and appearing suddenly motionless. While a lot of parents might think their child is just misbehaving, It's really due to nerve cells in the brain sending electrical and chemical signals repeatedly and rapidly. And this is, of course, treatable with medication. 
Kenneth was also diagnosed with passive aggressive disorder, right? So we all know someone who we have personally labeled passive aggressive. I mean, I've known quite a few in my day, but this is a bit more than that. It is also sometimes called negativistic personality disorder. It's a pattern of expressing negative feelings in an indirect way. They are often sullen and argumentative, express envy and resentment, alternate between hostile defiance and contrition, unreasonably criticizes and belittles authority, but most often the person follows an erratic path causing endless tension with others and deliberately tries to be disappointing to others. This pattern of behavior often occurs in people with borderline, histrionic, paranoid, dependent, antisocial, and avoidant personality disorders. It comes off as resentment, being stubborn, procrastination, deliberate inefficiency, pretending to be forgetful. I mean, you get the idea. We also know that Kenneth was a pathological liar, and it's also sometimes called compulsive lying, and we all know what that is. They are not actually the same thing, with compulsive lying not being used in the same way as pathological lying. Now, pathological lying often has a very clear motive. They are lying to get attention or admiration, pity, and sympathy from others. But generally, this type of lying is a means of control and manipulation. Okay, so that's important. Now let's get into Angelo's childhood. And remember, he was born much earlier than Kenneth. Angelo was a first generation born in the United States to parents that immigrated from Italy. At just five years old, his parents divorced and his mother took him and his sister Cecilia and moved to Glendale, California. From an early age, Angelo was a troublemaker and he didn't bother trying to hide his deep disdain of women. He was verbally abusive to his mother, calling her a, quote, whore and a, pardon, a cunt, and he was not much better toward his sister. His family was Catholic, but he rebelled against going to Mass. His grades were bad, and his attitude toward authority was even worse. He skipped school often because his mother had to work full-time and there was just no way to keep him under control. So of course by the time Angelo was 14 years old, he began bragging to his friends about how fond he was of sodomizing and raping young girls. He spoke often about his idol, Carol Chessman, who was a convicted robber kidnapper and rapist and was sentenced to death in 1948. And that's a whole other story, so we'll just keep it moving. Angelo stated that Chessman was his hero, but that he should have murdered his victims rather than just raping them. At just 16 years old, he dropped out of school and was arrested several times for larceny. 
The authorities attempted to send him to a reform school, but he just escaped, only to be recaptured by the California Youth Authority, but ultimately he was a free teenager again by the age of 17. So that was Angelo's childhood. Let's unpack it. We see that he was disruptive and displayed perverse sexual obsessions from a young age. While we don't have the level of information about Angelo's very early years like we do Kenneth's, it is common that if young boys display this level of deviant sexual behavior, and especially as violent as Angelo bragged about, there could very well be some sexual abuse as a child there. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Now, it's normal for children to display positive and negative social behaviors as they grow and develop. All children lie, and they all misbehave at one point or another. This is common sense. But some kids display a rather high level of antisocial behavior. With this disorder, children can be hostile and disobedient, but to the nth degree. They steal and destroy property and can also be verbally as well as physically abusive. And the reality is that if it's left untreated, it can lead to more severe issues when they are adults. This conduct problem generally shows up during adolescence and is most prevalent in young boys, as we see with Angelo. It is most often inherited through genetics and family history, although it can develop if the child is in a violent, unstable, or tumultuous home, are being guided by negative parenting practices, as well as their school and neighborhood environment. So this leads me to believe that he most likely inherited these traits. Think about it. Angelo is born. He spends the first five years of his life in New York. His mother divorced his father and moved to the complete opposite side of the continent. Poof, his father is 100% out of the picture. Now, of course, we don't know the actual history, but it makes me think his father had some violent and possible sadistic tendencies, but this is nothing more than a guess. Symptoms of antisocial personality disorder in children include lack of conscience and empathy, disregarding and abusing authority as well as people's rights, aggressive and violent tendencies, arrogance, a lack of remorse, all of which we see in his childhood behavior. So let's get back into the story. Not long after Kenneth Bianchi graduated from high school, he married his high school girlfriend, but the marriage only lasted eight months and she left him, apparently giving him no reason as to why she did. Sources say that he cheated on her repeatedly. Now, he did try his hand at college to become a police officer, but he dropped out. At 21 years old, he applied at the sheriff's office and was turned down. So he got a job as a security guard, but he then jumped from company to company, 
because he was suspected of theft repeatedly, such as his very short time working in a jewelry store, for example. It has been stated that he proposed marriage to a girl named Susan twice, and both times she turned him down, telling him that he had to, at the very least, have a stable job. Finally, in 1976, Kenneth decided to move to Los Angeles and in with his cousin Angelo. And what had Angelo been up to? Well, let's go back. In 1955, when he was 21 years old, he was dating a 17-year-old girl from his old high school and she became pregnant with his child. Angelo and this girl married and then Angelo promptly left her just two weeks later. After his son was born, he divorced her and refused to pay any child support and demanded that his son never call him father. Angelo then moved on to another girl, Mary, got her pregnant, and then married her. This one he managed to stay married to for eight years, and she bore him a total of five children, four sons, and then the last baby was a daughter. Now, not long after the birth of his daughter, he was jailed twice for petty theft. Then, in 1964, it is believed that he, disclaimer, raped his own then two-year-old daughter. At this point, Mary divorced him, also stating that he was a sexual deviant and that he was violent. People that knew him then stated that he never showed any remorse or regret for displaying such violent behavior, including sexual violent behavior, in front of his own children. Then, for some reason, Mary suggested they reconcile. Her reward for attempting to keep her family whole? Well, Angelo handcuffed her. He shoved a gun into her abdomen and threatened to kill her. Needless to say, she was finally done. In 1965, the then 31-year-old Angelo began dating a 25-year-old single mother named Nanette, and she allowed him to move in with her pretty quickly. Of course, his treatment of her was no different than his ex-wife, but she stayed with him, and then again she felt that if she left him, he would kill her. Two years later, he was arrested for stealing cars and sentenced to a year in prison. However, because he had so many children, the judge suspended the sentence so that he could work to support them all. Not long after, Nanette gave birth to Angelo's seventh child, a son. The next year brought another son, bringing his total to eight children. Then in 1971, Angelo started sexually abusing and raping Nanette's 14-year-old daughter because, quote, she needed breaking in, unquote. He boasted about it to his friends, stating that when he was done with her, he gave her to his sons to use. 
It was at this point Nanette did exactly what Angelo's mother did. She packed her and her children's shit and moved completely out of the state to escape him. Thank God. Finally, in 1975, after marrying another woman, and though they never actually lived together and also never technically divorced, Angelo was witnessed to be masturbating while watching schoolchildren play from the window of his apartment. It was at this time that he also told a friend of his that he forced his sons to rape his own daughter and that he had also sodomized one of his sons as well. He also opened his own car upholstering shop in a heavily Mexican gang area, though it was said that he was accepted and was actually fairly talented in the trade. He was basically a sex addict, sometimes sleeping with his own son's girlfriends. And this guy, this guy. He nicknamed himself the Italian Stallion. But it was no secret that he was completely sadistic. At 45 years old, he began dating a teenager and got her pregnant. She had an abortion the first time. And then she got pregnant again and had a miscarriage with that one. But she was in love with him, despite their huge age difference and the fact that he beat her and cheated on her constantly. So now, guys, we've come full circle, okay? 25-year-old Kenneth Bianchi moved to Los Angeles from New York and in with his 42-year-old cousin, Angelo. The year was 1976. Quickly, they bonded and began discussing the idea of being pimps, to have young girls prostitute for them for money. Angelo reveled in telling Kenneth about how women should, quote, be put in their place. During this time, Kenneth's mother sent him money to buy a car, and he used that to buy a 1972 Cadillac. So Kenneth still really wanted to be a policeman, and he did attempt to work for the police department, but he was rejected. This was also the time that he began sleeping with one of Angelo's son's girlfriends. But the duo finally put their plan into action and became pimps in 1977. It is believed the first girls they had working for them were two teens, Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears. The two men lured them into Angelo's home, then locked them inside and forced them to sell themselves. They beat them, they raped them, pimped them out, and if they tried to resist, they were abused tenfold. At last, Sabra begged to be freed just long enough to grab some supplies and somehow took Becky and they fled. She later said, quote, I was tired of getting beat up, tired of all the threats, and tired of engaging in prostitution, unquote. And their escape made these two men very angry, and their violence escalated. They wanted to continue their pimping business and paid a prostitute, Deborah Noble, 
for a list of names of women who they could employ. She came back accompanied by friend Yolanda Washington and sold them this phony list. Once they realized what she had done, they decided to seek revenge. And Yolanda had made the mistake of telling them where she often worked to get John's. Yolanda Washington was last seen by a shop owner being approached by two policemen who then handcuffed her and threw her into the back of an unmarked car. In October 1977, she was found dead, nude on a hillside near Forest Lawn Cemeteries. She had ligature marks around her wrists, her ankles, and her neck. She had also been violently raped, but then washed clean of evidence and then dumped. Not even two weeks later, 15-year-old runaway Judy Miller survived by prostituting herself. She was found nude on a hill in Glendale. She had ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. Lisa Caston's body was found with nearly identical wounds as the others just five days later. She was the first that was actually not a prostitute. The authorities knew then that they potentially had a serial killer. On November 20th, 1977, another nude body was found in a bush in a Highland Park area. It was the body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler, who lived alone in an apartment in Glendale. She, too, had ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck, with the added horror of being injected with household surface cleaner. There were no obvious suspects, but Kenneth was her neighbor at that time. The same day, another two victims, a 12 and a 14-year-old, were found under the same circumstances. Now, Kenneth came up in the earlier part of the investigation, actually, because Christina Weckler had mentioned him in a notebook or journal describing him as a used car salesman. They had met as neighbors. So three days later, 28-year-old Scientology student and budding actress Jane King was found dead. Jane had been picked up in Hollywood after being at an acting class. One week later, 18-year-old Lauren Wagner, a business student, was found on a hillside driveway. When Lauren was found, there was evidence in the palms of her hands, burn marks that indicated she had been tortured. The perpetrator was now dubbed the Hillside Strangler. Citizens were terrified and women were buying guns in droves and taking self-defense classes. Then the next murder was horrific and it sent a very clear message. Kimberly Martin, who had joined an escort service to try to keep herself safe from all of this, was found dumped down a big, wide, open, and vacant hill facing the whole of Los Angeles. The Hillside Strangler had now, by this point, killed nine women in just two months' time. And what everyone thought was a single man wasn't finished. 
but then the killings just suddenly stopped. It was thought at first that they might be in jail or something else. If only that were the case. Two months later, high in the Los Angeles mountains, 20-year-old Cindy Hudgepeth, who was a college student, was murdered and then placed in the trunk of her own car. Then her car rolled down a very steep hill. Now the problem was, how did the killer walk down the mountain without being seen by anyone? It was at this point that the authorities realized there must have been a second person. The strangler was not acting alone. And it was interesting, actually, that Cindy had taken her car to an upholstery shop earlier, the very shop that Angelo owned. Now, Kenneth, during this time, was, of course, still trying to get a job with the local police department and had even gone on some, quote, ride-alongs while the police were working the murders that he and his cousin had committed. At some point... Kenneth fessed up and told Angelo that he'd been going on these ride-alongs and had also been questioned after his name was found in that journal. Needless to say, Angelo was furious and demanded Kenneth leave the area or he would kill him. The next bodies appeared in the Bayside area of Washington. It was the double murders of 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder. They were college roommates at Western Washington University and were missing for a day. Karen's car was found on top of a hill, the bodies clearly visible in the hatchback of her car. Both girls had the same wounds as the ones in Los Angeles. What was his downfall was that the girls had contacted a security company that was owned by Kenneth Bianchi. And without Angelo, he had been sloppy and he left a lot of clues. He was questioned and his license looked at, showing his former address in L.A. in Glendale, right next door to the victim Christina Weckler and across the street from victim Cindy he was questioned and his license looked at and it showed his former address in L.A. in Glendale, next door to victim Christina Weckler and across the street from victim Cindy Hedspeth. He was arrested that day. Now, once arrested, Kenneth admitted that he and his cousin Angelo posed as police officers and tricked young women and teenagers. He also spoke of their torture methods, poisoning with carbon monoxide, electrocution, which had caused the wounds in that one victim's hands, and lethal injection. So during the trial, Bianchi pled not guilty by reason of insanity, stating he had dissociative identity disorder. He knew of this from faking a degree in psychology and then charging people for counseling, though he really didn't have very many patients, you know, quote, patients. His apartment was full of books on psychology, actually, and he did study. Kenneth also agreed to testify against Angelo for a lighter sentence, but while giving testimony, 
it was obvious that he was lying and he was completely uncooperative. His efforts were in vain. Angelo was sentenced to life in prison where he later died from a heart attack. Kenneth is serving his life sentence in Washington State Penitentiary. He will be eligible for parole in 2025. So folks, where do we begin? We all understand, it's, it's just known, that the judicial system in this country is flawed and can only impose specific sentence lengths based on the crime and what the laws say the jail time is for it. However, I will never understand why, when it was so clearly obvious long before the murders occurred, that these two men were a very serious danger to women. With the track record they had, it should have been clear that these two had no business being free men. Now, I can give a lot of leniency for childhood trauma, genetic factors, and so on. But at the end of the day, these men have a deep-seated hatred for women and chose to torture and murder them when they clearly knew it was wrong. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of hours to put this together, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate every single one of you because I know you could have been listening to anyone else but you chose me. Thanks and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.